Sorry, Jasper, cut all that out. Ah, there. Okay, Jasper, sorry, cut that. Just there. Go from um, where I went, class struggle. Sorry, this is going to be very cutty for you. I apologize. Um, oh my God, we have to cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to come for me in the night. Jasper's going to kill me. Oh no. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Social Review Podcast. Today I'm joined by two guests and first of all going to be talking about kind of the state of LGBT issues and rights in society, uh, probably quite a broad ranging discussion all held by three LGBT women. So that's potentially a podcast first forever considering uh, the way that podcasts are these days. So um, yes, I'm Eugenie at MemesTD on Twitter and then we have Julia. Hi, I'm Julia. Blanc. Uh, I'm a writer and sometimes collaborator with the Social Review. Hi, um, I'm Lines. Uh, I have, I guess I've, I write and sometimes have been on the podcast before for the Social Review and like yeah, in real life I do cybersecurity. Thanks guys. So uh, I think first of all where we were thinking about starting was a, um, a news item which came up last week um, that Julia flagged, but I think also maybe the LGBT media potentially had slightly more interest in it than the quote-unquote mainstream media. Something that happened in Brazil, the mayor of Rio, uh, Julia, I'm not going to butcher the pronunciation because that would actually be embarrassing for me, so the mayor of Rio de Janeiro demanded that a Marvel comic book, uh, which is Avengers the Children's Crusade, uh, be withdrawn from a sale at Rio's biennial book fair because it showed the male superheroes Wiccan and Hulkling kissing. Uh, this book actually ended up completely selling out of the book fair by Friday. Also, organisers told told a newspaper in Brazil, and um, actually a major Brazilian newspaper from Sao Paulo used it as their front page, and uh, and in their Sunday editorials kind of picked apart the issue quite a lot and were discussing it in terms of press freedom. So I thought, first of all, where we'd start was um, Julia Azara, a woman in Brazil, as it were. Um, what do you think this this news item suggests about the state of kind of LGBT politics in Brazil at the moment? Can I lie to you? It is bad. It's very bad. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of like you said. Um, I think just to kind of like give a wider picture, the whole thing was very clearly uh, a kind of publicity stunt, like base raising thing for the mayor of Rio de Janeiro, uh, Marcelo Crivello. He is a... He gets his votes from a hyper-conservative, evangelical, uh, church-going public. So he basically just kind of like plays to the audience when he does things like that. He runs on those sort of like cultural issues, including LGBT, LGBT rights. This is a similar thing to what Bolsonaro did, but it's seen all across the country. Um... So, like you said, the the move sort of backfired a bit because uh, there was like a, a civil uh, civil society reaction very strong, and like surreally, one of the heroes of this whole thing was like a, a famous YouTuber who bought like thousands of copies. But to me, the whole thing was very traumatizing because, and I know like saying traumatizing sounds like over the top and exaggerated, but like. It, it, it really shakes you in, in a way that you, you, you're not quite ready for it. Because it's one thing when you're like constantly on like low level alert and then you know that if you step out of line here or there, 
somebody's gonna say something. It, it, it shakes you when it gets to you in places that you, you didn't even know, like, could get you. The biennial book fair is, like, sort of like one of the few Brazilian culture events. It's, like, a lovely thing. It, it has free books, it has publishers, it has authors. Uh, children from schools love going. Uh, it's, it's, like, Brazilian, Brazilians have, like, very low um, literacy rates. Uh, in terms of like how many books per year they read like I think it's the average Brazilian reads about one book a year I don't remember how much how many the British read but like I think it's like m much more so this was one of like one of the big events and 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 the image of people from the government like bursting into the door of that book fair and, and like searching for the books to like take them away you know although like by that moment it had been all out told was like something I wasn't ready for in many ways even though I knew that all of those things are real the thing is like my partner doesn't live in Brazil she lives in uh, Scotland and so basically like for all intents and purposes like I look pretty much as a heterosexual woman or at least not somebody that you can say for sure that is gay I I usually like don't have to deal with this sort of thing all the time and even when i have to deal with this sort of thing it's something like i'm almost always uh, emotionally prepared for to see this being attacked on the level of like something really like small it, it's a reminder of like how lgbt life it's it's there's never like safe enough there's never like there's never that moment where you go okay, I can relax, like, 24-7, at this point, you're not gonna get into this. There's always, like, the chance that this could happen. And, like, I know this sounds, like, terribly, like, uh, alarmist from, from a person who's, like, from a fairly privileged background, but, yeah, it's just, it's just the power of the imaginary, the, 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 to know that, like, these people just walked into the, the book fair and, like, were ready to shut it down because there was the possibility of a child seeing two uh, men kissing and it was like a perfectly like nice kiss is very like the sort of thing you, you catch in spider-man comics all the time or even in disney movies so knowing this was very like impactful to me so i was just thinking when i sort of felt this recently and i was thinking about the stuff that's happened quite recently in the uk in birmingham with the i can't remember it's called like the inclusive everyone everyone inclusive or oh, I can't remember the program's name but the thing where basically schools running a kind of uh, all families are different sort of look here's a book about two gay penguins raising a child etc etc and those protests uh, from all sorts of groups mainly religiously motivated I think but, but some other stuff too basically against it and against uh, that kind of that education it very much being an appeal to like our parents rights to keep their children away from this stuff and and then it being basically supported by I think at least one or two of the Labour MPs in the area, and that sort of filling me with this feeling of like for fuck's sake, you know I mean goodness I was so I could get into with a trans person but just like you know anyone who thinks that, that, that things are are really are that much better um, or the like. As you say, these things can't suddenly ambush you. I just, you know, I just don't think that's right. It makes me really angry that we haven't, you know, withdrawn the whip from those MPs in the Labour Party, or, or really, as far as I know, kind of so much against them. And 
it's this general feeling I feel sometimes that, that LGBT people in politics are just one of, you know, another interest group and people might pander to us some of the time, but actually I'm not necessarily convinced all the time there's this holistic view of our, that, that we have, you know, rights or that we should, or that we're not just another another group whose interests should be balanced against. And that, that can be pretty shite. There was that thing I saw yesterday about the Home Office, uh, you know, not, not historically something we're a fan of on the Social Review, uh, basically saying to uh, people who were refugees, I think, because they're fleeing from countries where they'd be persecuted for being gay, and basically saying, but you, you're Christian as well, and that seems completely incompatible, and basically saying, you can't be both of those things, so we think you're lying, actually, about being gay, and basically, like, regurgitating homophobic Bible verses back at them. I, you know, I still see these things in society and I'm not the one directly affected by them. I feel more angry on behalf of the people who are directly affected. But we can't kid ourselves that these things have gone away. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right because I think what you're drawing on there, at least what, what sprang out to me, what I was thinking as you were speaking, was just that how much of um, every now and again that you see people people on the left who who describe... LGBT rights, but also kind of race and gender, obviously all three intersect with each other in in huge ways as being almost a sideshow on the big struggle, which is the class struggle. And if you're interested in, or if your kind of campaigning focuses on any one of those three, for LGBT rights, maybe especially um, that you're somehow kind of being caught up in a kind of middle-class, bourgeois, low-level, not particularly important, just about making people feel nice about themselves, uh, conflict there. Does anyone have any uh, Does anyone have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I want to avoid saying too much on this next bit because I feel intensely, in, very intensely white and British. Uh, so Me too, no worries. <laughs> but, 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 but I absolutely think there's some stuff about colonialism and colonial ideas of sexuality and gender, which I have read some good stuff on, but I don't really want to paraphrase other people's words back, but but the way in which, like, no, I think these struggles are absolutely all tied together, that, that like, uh, anyone who thinks that you can uh, create a just world and decolonise world um, without addressing struggles of race and uh uh, gender and sexuality uh, uh, and all of the things is just is just wrong. You can take your fucking bargain basic classic bargain basement classical Marxism and shove it up. You you know it's just pointless to me. Like how you could try to reduce the complexity of human experience down to one particular kind of analysis just is it's incomprehensible. Uh, but like I guess people learn to do it because it's easier. Or I mean you see the whole discussion that's been happening on Twitter recently about the way in which people use phrases like traditional working class and all these kind of things and them being kind of dog whistly stuff. And I think it's, yeah, there's this whole nasty current actually on the left. Although, you know, not always just the left. Like I, I was saying about, you know, sudden transphobia maybe before. There's someone, I, I shan't say their Twitter handle, but someone who's a relatively popular, I think, person on sort of political Twitter, takes relatively centrist positions. I followed for a while, we'd interacted a bit, you know, um, Kind of fun to interact with, but I, I'm def- definitely on the left, so I disagree a bit, but, you know. Um, and then one day just retweet, retweeted Julie Bindle about, it was around, uh, I, I can't remember the specific incident, it was it was that recent kind of protest thing. And it kind of was the, 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 the line for me, because he'd said a couple of things before, which made me think he was a bit, you know, too sympathetic and so forth, but that kind of made me go, yeah. And I think I'm going, yeah, I actually don't really trust 
people online unless they've overtly said that they're kind of allies and even then to, to not be shit I can only assume sometimes that like you know if you're if you're, if you're a person of colour or, or, or non-white or however you feel about yourself uh, you know I can I know some people find it hard to trust white people online even if they say they're allies and that you know I can absolutely understand that too and it's just I, I, I don't know sometimes I just I, I sometimes it feels like you can't trust anyone that like people are just mm. secretly waiting to disappoint you I may, I may be feeling just very pessimistic at the moment, I don't know. Not, not to, like, interrupt you, but... No, sure, go ahead. I, I feel like there's, like, there's a thing, like... There's a difference between you shouldn't trust anyone, and, and there's, like, you know, people have, like, huge blind spots. Like, one of the things I try to, like, not do is to, like, not throw the baby with the bathwater. Like, I try to, like, give people, like, some space to, like, feel their way and kind of learn how to like move out of those bad things but I, I think one of the things on the left that like the reason why they don't like to look the old left kind of like the reason why they don't like to like give uh deeper looks into like these issues specifically is because it starts to implicate people which they have thought of as innocent so I remember when Trump was elected, like, people kept going, like, oh, are you saying that, like, every single one of the people who elected Trump are racist? Are you saying that this guy, like, that I've known my whole life and he's never said anything racist is a, is a racist? I said, I don't think they are in the Ku Klux Klan. Like, I don't think that these people all, like, I, I and I don't think that, like, the same thing with, with the gay issue, because this was, like, a huge thing when Bolsonaro was winning. They, there were people who kept saying like, I don't hate gay people. I have gay cousins. I have, I have gay friends. I love them. Like they're my best friends. I'm just voting for Bolsonaro because I don't want the Workers Party to win. And like, they go like, they get really offended. Like they get really heated. Like, do you think I'm a homophobe? And it's like, I don't think you're a homophobe in the sense that you're gonna beat me up and leave me to die. I think you're a homophobe in the sense that like you don't care if that happens to me. Or you are willing to take that chance of that happening to me if it means that you get the Workers' Party out. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And honestly, yeah, I think we, we, we do it on the left and on how we classify people. People have this weird, very black and white view of almost like ethics of morality. Like no one wants to be... Uh, <laughs> no one wants to be a bad person, a racist or a homophobe or whatever. Um, and we have this idea that that is a thing that you are, like, intrinsically, as if you were a sim character, and I could click on your icon, and it would say under your stats, likes, cakes, homophobia, but actually, like, people, <laughs> are, more, people are more complicated than that, like, they're, 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 you, and you can absolutely commit homophobic actions and, and exist homophobically without, you know, it, it's just this incoherent view of things that's, that worries more about kind of what people are and the sins that they have committed instead of the actions that they do. There's this current business with, I only found out yesterday because I can be away for the weekend, where, you know, someone's been elected to, like, the Scottish Executive Committee for Labour and, and he's just said a bunch of shit stuff in the past, but people have this instinctive solidarity here with him because he's on their team. I mean, my position on all things is I'm very iconoclastic. I always assume people will let me down. I don't like the idea that a person or people become the leaders of your movement. I, I, I like decentralised movements, which are not about individuals, but about communities which work together to improve themselves. And, and, and because as soon as you put people on a pedestal, 
I think intrinsically they disappoint you because that, that, that is just not a thing that people can be. Um, that probably says a lot about kind of where my political leanings lie, but, you know, tear down your idols, you know? I think there's a... Um, it's a topic I feel like we've re- returned to so many times on this podcast, um, even since our very earliest episodes when we talked to uh, Miriam Merwich about the state of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and people's inability to hold, you know, the, as you say, the people they instinctively feel like are on, quote, their side to any kind of level of responsibility is honestly quite shocking for people who purport to be part of a, of a movement which is meant to be centred on kind of very instinctive levels of solidarity and community and collective defence and to say, you know, if you can't if you can't hold your closest comrades, you know, to this level, you know, how on earth can you expect to believe that you can be seen to be, you know, taking, holding the Tories or whoever it might be, the fascists, to account um i i completely agree with you there and certainly people's ability to kind of brush aside i think you see this especially with homophobia and transphobia you know you know other other things in the kind of queerphobic umbrella but especially those two you know there's a level of um the level of which that i think i see it on twitter as well that there's a a kind of low level of that that you might see that people you otherwise perceive to be quite kind of decent people at least tacitly engaging with it and responding to it and it's about finding the correct way to engage with them on that and kind of be well actually you know do you realize that this comment is really actually kind of rooted in homophobia if it's talking about maybe um or transphobia i was thinking especially about some of this backlash you see to um sex and gender education in schools thinking about the case in birmingham especially and talking about you know what what is it what's right for a child to know and what should they know at what age and all this kind of thing appropriateness and you know you can kind of see continuations in the rhetoric that you used to see in the kind of uh, 70s 80s 90s about you know kind of mainstream way of discussing especially gay men and being as a kind of inappropriate not fit to be associating with children um you see that for Kind of lesbian women having their children taken away as well. I just, so I think the, the noughties as well. You know, like two thousand and three was it that Section Twenty Eight got lifted? I mean, I yeah. remember. But was that horrible case with Stephen? Oh, he was in a band, a boy band of some kind, and he he died quite young, I think. And then I think it was a Janoir in the in the Daily Mail was horrendously homophobic about him, and that was in like I think the late noughties. Um, it was exactly that kind of innuendo. So you know, this stuff. It's not not that recently that it was very, very, very mainstream as, as it is currently, to be quite honest, with, with trans stuff. Um, I haven't seen much... To that, yeah, Stephen Gately uh, in 2009. I haven't seen much stuff of, like about the reaction to Gareth Davies, who is that, uh, I think he's a rugby player, who came out as gay quite a while ago. And he's just come out, I think, because a tabloid is about to reveal his uh, HIV status, and he's come out as HIV positive. And that, uh, I mean, that, the, basically, I think he had to come out because the tablet was going to reveal it, which is indicative that this stuff is still there. Um, I haven't personally seen much kind of really negative backlash against him. I've seen mostly the comments where they seem to be quite supportive, but maybe I've not been looking at the right places. I bet it's absolutely there if I went looking. So it's still around to the, today, you know, that kind of prejudice against, against gay men and people in general. But like that, that's what's manifesting there. What? Yeah, one thing that I've been like... They've been like tormenting me like late lately, is how similar 
these rhetorics are worldwide. It like it like literally feels like contamination. I know that this is probably like you know, I spent a lot of time in Brazil and then I spent a lot of time in Britain and, and then like one thing starts looking like the other. Like kind of opening up about my own like uh privileges here, like instinctively I will always be like, Well transphobia is wrong. I might like not realize that the patterns are all there if like I wasn't living experiencing these things in Brazil. Because like the, the, the pattern of like spreading really fake, like nasty rumors about trans people in in the United Kingdom is the same pattern adopted in Brazil and it's always the same thing it's always like sexualizing children it's always the thing like you're attacking children uh, and, and, and it's like it feels like they just change the words a little bit and in certain cases they don't change the words because Bolsonaro certainly doesn't isn't like hates all LGBT people except the trans people, like, he hates all of them. It's, like, remarkable, like, how this works. And also, like, the thing where, like, any gay person does any bad thing and you're expected to, like, denounce them. And, like, I see that with the trans community all the time in the, the United Kingdom. Like, a random, like, trans person in the street has no opinion about this gross other trans person that you found on the internet being terrible. Yeah, I mean, on that last point, for sure, uh, there was, I, I can't remember her name, there was some Canadian trans woman who um, it very recently came out, she was really racist, but also before that she'd done a lot of quite questionable stuff, and it became a turf talking point for a while, people would ask you what you thought about her, and the answer is, I don't literally care what this random person in Canada has done, that, that impacts and reflects on my life, not at all. On the wider thing of strategy being similar, I think they are. I think often that is deliberate. I think these things are transferable. I mean, you you saw this the notion now of quote unquote gender ideology, which gets used as a phrase against trans people, directly comes from like I think a Catholic church sort of thing. Uh, maybe about five years ago, maybe a little more. I can't remember exactly. And that that language specifically, and then it kind of spread from there uh, to various bits and. Um, Literally, the Family Research Council, the evangelicals in the US, are the ones are putting a lot of funding, apparently, um, or at least having a lot of contact with um, anti-trans activists in the UK. And as far as I can see, they're just fucking getting their homophobic pamphlets from before, from like ten years ago, crossing out half the words, writing in the new ones, sending over the sending over the files, and just reprinting them. Like as you say, it's literally the same playbook. They're reading the same script, they just change the words a bit. And, and and I guess why does it work in, in lots of different places? Because actually, although society is often very different, pe people are people and we exist within societies which are shaped by one another. And, and sometimes it feels like these things are like, you know, I'd use the analogy of like hacking a, they're kind of hacking into a particular kind of instinct or, you know, we have a, people have a, people feel protective about children. It's a very innate kind of drive that we have and stuff that really plays on that. That's very, really very emotive. And it, yeah, absolutely it works. It's, it's fucked up that it does, but it absolutely does. Um, so yeah, I think that's really the thing where they learn tactics from one another. Um, I don't, and I don't, I, you know, I think you're right. I don't think it's just seeing patterns where there are none. I think the fear, like with the children, is always the same and it's always playing onto the same thing. And, um, until very recently this was a thing, which was, what if your child is gay? You know, this is a thing that like, even, even like, very woke, very progressive parents probably like, have as, have as a fear, even like, 
as they, they just go, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine. But, like, I feel like kids, people who are kids at the time I was a kid, so, like, 10 years ago you were 15, they still had to, like, face their parents. And, like, I'm not talking about, like, horrible, like, hyper-religious uh, parents who hated their, their child because they're gay. I'm talking about, like, those kind of, like, sort of, like, raised on quote-unquote middle-class values of, like, being super liberals and, and you know those people even those people still have those fears of like oh but you know what if my child is gay i don't want that it's like it makes me uncomfortable like i feel like it's very much playing on that i feel like it's less so for children from now so like if you're a child like between 12 and 18 i feel like y your parents are going to be much more accepting they're not going to be like like at most they're going to be concerned for you they're not going to be concerned that like you know you're a bad person or, or that you have disappointed them in, in some level i think it's interesting that everything we said has kind of returned to these same baseline ideas that somehow the existence of lgbt people is inherently dangerous to uh society and especially to children and i do think that's rooted in this idea that somehow in existing as being someone who your very life and you know being out in public and happy and you know living your life to the fullest is somehow you know, an affront to children because it is an affront to to what they perceive to be the foundational level of society which is kind of heterosexual patriarchal patriarchal gender normative relationships and you know that's the i mean that's the, really the kind of what sits at the core of it so um yeah, if if nothing else, when listening to this podcast, I hope that all of our listeners, um, if you ever see people start, you know, basically quoting that Principal Skinner meme, you know, won't someone finger the children? Or no, it is no, it's not Principal Skinner. Gosh, it's um, Reverend Lovejoy. Anyway, that they'll remember that you know, there's always something to interrogate there, and actually, you know, what you decide to bring forward and to amplify even if it's not online, but in real life as well, actually has profound consequences for lots of people. Hello, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm Jasper, at JasperCH on Twitter, and this week I am joined by the wonderful uh, Penny Andrews. Hi, Penny. Hi, Jasper. I'm Penny B on Twitter. Um, I'm a PhD student at the University of Sheffield, trying to finish a never-ending thesis about research sharing infrastructures and open access policy. But mostly what I write about is politics, pop culture and online fandom and how all that stuff works for research reasons and for the media. Places like Prospect, uh, The New Statesman and um, naturally uh, The Social Review, of course. Um, of course. And of course. <laughs> um uh, politics and uh, its intersection with um, pop culture and fandom is something that I'm really interested in too. Um, and I'm a big fan of all your work and research on the subject. And this conversation kind of has come about because of your most recent article on it for um, Tortoise, Can I Have a Selfie Minister? And it's a really good piece. You should go read it. And in it, you differentiate between the terms fan base and fandom so fandom uh is something much narrower um than fan base uh about constructing 
an identity through social interaction and engagement with uh, source material, whatever that is, um, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah. It's um, much more intentional than just being a fan of something. You said, like, uh, they talk about their interest and get joy from the sense of communion and it gives them um, a sense of purpose. Uh, and you, in the article, you, you discuss that uh, within the context of this year's Tory leadership election and uh, you write about going to one of the hustings and seeing people like Priti Patel and S. McVeigh and, and et cetera, et cetera, um, riling up the, the fandom. Um, and do you feel that you have a better grasp on understanding politics and political communication um, by framing it within that context of fandom than uh, other um, politicos and kind of political commentators do, maybe? Yeah, well, I'd like to think so. Otherwise, what I'm doing might be pointless. And some of them definitely <laughs> think that of me. Like when I've spoken at political science events, I get quite a lot of pushback because people go, oh, why is that different from tribalism or why isn't it different from populism and I'm like well, well tribalism kind of goes part of the way but it's it's much more about who you are as a person and who your community is and your emotional relationship with that and if you think about fandom in terms of the pop culture stuff that's totally how people feel about being a Doctor Who fan or a Star Wars fan or a fan of a sports team it's not just about how well they're performing it's about saying something about who you are as a person and what your values are and what you identify with um and like building off on that and you mentioned Star Wars and doc 2 there um the the passage that really kind of jumped out at me in the piece was um the statement that you know uh, for the first time ever the uk has a cabinet made up of self-identified fans of margaret thatcher and winston churchill and when you wrote that it was a sort of like oh my god that actually makes so much sense like now it kind of clicks into place because uh thatcher and churchill are perhaps um subject to the greatest degree of political myth making more than i think any other british politician past or present and it, it really isn't any different from their kind of like reverence for that the original star wars trilogy or classic doctor who or you know whatever franchise you want to you want to say um and in those franchises, that nostalgia and reverence um, is held by their current stewards. So J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy in Star Wars, um, or Stephen Moffat and Chris Chibnall and Russell T. Davies for Doctor Who. Um, and it's perhaps the dominating influence in devising storytelling. You know, the, the entire sequel trilogy for Star Wars is about nostalgia. And much of Stephen Moffat's run of Doctor Who was all about um, the past and calling back to the past and how the past of Doctor Who has informed the present. And given how, you say, the cabinet is made up of those self-identified fans of Thatcher and Churchill, do you find that the same applies to politics and that um, modern policy and political platforms are being made as a sort of like legacy tribute to those politicians and governments from the past? Well, what I find quite interesting in particular is that... Um, on the Labour side, they don't say that they're a fan of Tony Blair. They don't say that they're a fan of Tony Benn, the two Tonys. Um, they might say they're a fan of Clement Hatley because it's far enough in the past for it not to seem weird to them, maybe because there's a big stigma attached to being a fan of someone who's still alive or recently dead. Um, but they definitely that's definitely the traditions in Labour at the present. And it's like, well, either you're doing your politics in tribute to that thing or you're doing your politics in tribute to that thing and you can very clearly plot the lineage and you can go oh yeah Tony Benn would be happy with that or Tony Blair would be happy with that what's interesting with 
the Tory side is that they explicitly say, I am a Thatcherite, I am a Thatcher fan, I love Churchill, I am a Churchill fan, and they'll get quite defensive if anybody attacks either of those people's legacies, and they're in the cabinet saying and doing that, as well as having written books and stuff like that about them. But their actual policies and politics are not that close to what Thatcher and Churchill did. They quite like to have that level of impact, but it is very much the myth-making side. It's almost like they're trying to make Fetch happen with it. You know, they're like, well, <laughs> if I say Churchill enough and kind of bluster enough and do the sort of hand positions and try to make big posh speeches, then maybe I can get some of that popularity and support and have some of that status. Or if I invoke Margaret Thatcher because I'm quite hard right and I'm quite pro-free markets. But, I mean, Thatcher wouldn't have agreed with a lot of the way people are approaching ways that people are approaching the Brexit issue and she never had a cabinet that was as Thatcherite as the current cabinet. On the on the subject of Tony Blair, um, you talk a lot in the piece as well about anti-fandom and how uh, your kind of like personal identity in fandom is defined as much by who you don't like as it is who you like and how much do you think the current Labour project, the Corbynite project, is defined by an anti-fandom for Blair and anti- Blairism, quote unquote. Oh, it's definitely there, a hundred percent. Particularly for the older elements of the fandom, because I think people think of the fandom as being in Corbynism as being, you know, the people shouting "Oh, Jeremy Corbyn" at Glastonbury, and perhaps it being young people. Whereas the most active parts of the political fandom for like all of the big figures in politics in the UK is actually people who are over fifty. Mm. Um, and so they have, a lot of these people are people who left Labour over Blair and Iraq and they want to get what they see as their party back or old Labour back and they're very anti-Blair. And then even for younger people, you know, even if they weren't really alive or around for the Blair era, they're very aware that the, that was the dominant faction in any interaction they had with Labour politics before. So that's very anti but also like the Corbyn skeptics are not really putting forward that much that's new of their own it's all attack attack at anti-fandom of Jeremy Corbyn and my mm. enemy's enemy is my friend so you get people who have very disparate actual politics getting together just to hate Jeremy Corbyn and you know I'm not in any way a Corbyn fan I think he's a hugely problematic figure but I don't think it's very productive in politics to form everything around that because we've now got a state of play where you've got people who have formed their politics basically on hating Thatcher or on hating Corbyn or on hating Blair more than anything positive and even the people who are kind of very defensive of Corbyn they're kind of like they're more into despising the other side <laughs> than they are loving Corbyn it's 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 always easier to smash something than it is to love something long term anyway you, you start with hope and love for a figure but it's much easier to be an anti-fan and, and what what implications would you say that that has going forward for the political projects themselves because basically one of the founding principles of, this, of the social review is that we're trying to envision a socialism for the 21st century that isn't just about jeremy corbyn it's not about any particular one person it is about the ideas as you rightly say much of the Corbynite project is attached to him um and politicians other than Corbynite clearly have hugely 
popular and significant personal um, political fandom. So whether you're Donald Trump and Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson or Bernie Sanders or Joe Swinson or whoever. So do you think that is a problem going forward with trying to, um, you know, win the battle of ideas uh, as it as it were? Um, or is this something which has kind of like always been around and is not actually as big a deal to be worrying about? I think it's it's always been around. I mean, obviously, I talk a lot about it going back to Gladstone and Disraeli and mm. them being kind of celebrities and people turning up to see them before that. Obviously, the royal family and broadside ballads, even back in the day, were kind of personalising politics in this way because telling stories is how we understand the world and you can't mm. have stories without characters. Um, and, it, you know, social media and... 24-hour news obviously just like intensifies that but you can be a fan of like a campaign or identity so like a lot of the people in the FBPE uber remain fandom like it's not necessarily focused on a particular figure there may be big name fans within that fandom that get Mm. like temporary love because they are big name fans within that fandom but the the identity will outlive that and if you look at something like extinction rebellion people are a fan of Extinction Rebellion and climate Mm. strikes as a thing, more even than green politics. It's like the name, the brand, it says something about who they are, you know, it's part of them. And so I don't think it has to be about personal fandom. What it does have to be about is having some kind of emotional engagement because people would like to say, oh, it's all about the ideas, it's all about the policy, but you'll only be attracted to that if there is some story there, something to help you get into it and somebody who can explain the ideas for you. And the the trick is being able to make it not focused on that one person as the light in the wilderness and the hope for everything because like even like Obama, they're always going to let you down. And that can be mm. really difficult for parties like in the technocratic era, if you like, of, of uh, Blair and, and Brown and um, Cameron, like, the number of people voting went really, like, really far down. If you look at the 1960s, the youth vote was only, you know, 5 or 10% lower than the older person vote. You know, the the over 50s are always going to vote. The under 30s are mostly not going to vote now. That changed in the 90s. That literally changed from, like, 92 onwards. After the initial rush of people being in love with <laughs> Tony Blair and David Cameron, once that died out, there was nothing. People weren't that excited about the ideas and people just stopped turning out. People stopped voting and that big gap appeared so that now the youth vote is like 30% lower mm. than the older person's vote and people are completely disenfranchised. And mocking people for being maybe excited by Jeremy Corbyn or Joe Swinson or whatever can be great fun and I've engaged with it myself, but it's not particularly helpful in terms of closing that gap and getting people back in because if you want to go back to technocracy, that means just having loads and loads of people who aren't engaged with politics at all. And I'm not sure you can turn off people's current level of interest. They might hate politicians, but they're very interested in the issues and the news. That just kind of seems a bit like an unfortunate cycle. Like something I'm quite concerned about with the Corbyn, uh, with Labour specifically, um, is that uh, a lot of the support does just come to Corbyn personally and you know Corbyn's not going to be leader of the Labour Party forever he will stand down eventually uh and we don't know what the context of that will be but um it's going to happen I worry that 
Labour will then lose large chunks of support, um, both from the electorate and from its membership, because what they were really interested in was Corbyn as an individual, as a as a as a heroic character, rather than um, the socialist ideas which um, and the socialist policies which uh, were being put forward. So, do you think there's any way to kind of like? concrete well okay so this is kind of double-edged question so do you think there's any way to concretely solidify personal support into support for policy let's say if if you're working as like director of communications for a political party so you're trying to turn uh support for corbynist to support for the policies or if you work for the republicans and you're trying to turn personal support to trump into personal support for the republican party um and equally how do you think that in election time you can weaken that personal support and um, uh, and actually like you know gain voters from the other side because if if there is this like element of like personal fandom in um, how people engage with politics, then doesn't that make it really hard to actually like persuade people to vote for the other side election time if they feel this really intrinsic emotional attachment to whoever? How do you do that? I think yeah, I think you have to look at pulling pulling away the six. It's a bit like Jenga really in that. The, the strongest a fandom is in politics is like at the near the beginning you know it peaks we've now passed peak Corbyn which was 2017 mm. and so you look for the chinks of if you if you were Boris or if you were <laughs> Joe or the people around them then you'd be looking for the chinks of disappointment so I guess you'd be trying to persuade you could never persuade his hardcore fans because they'll be with him whatever and they mm. will just come and go. There's nothing you can do about the people who will only be in the Labour Party when it looks like 1983 or 2017. But you'll look for the people in the soft left who are like, well, I really like the policies, but I don't like all this stuff about anti-Semitism. It's really, really bad. I don't like the way women are treated. I don't like all the factional stuff. And you'd kind mm. of look at all of the other stuff that is emotionally important to people and find ways of addressing that. People have tried to do, in the Labour Party and in other parties, in the Conservative Party as well, have tried to do, if you like, succession planning and control who is leader after them. And the only way that worked was with Blair and Brown. Um, and I don't think, and Blair didn't really want Brown in the end to come after him. It was mm. just the initial mm. plan. He wanted David Miliband quite strongly. But you can't control where politics is at the point where you stop, step down. So there's lots of people in the Corbyn project who really want Rebecca Long-Bailey or Laura Pidcock or somebody like that to come after Corbyn and be Corbynism without Corbyn or whatever. And it's very unlikely that's where politics will be at that time, not necessarily because the right of the party will have wrested back control or whatever, but just because people will be looking for something actually new at that point. It's unlikely probably that Corbyn will step down because he just wants to step down in his own time. It'll be because he's lost an election again or because conversely he's been Prime Minister and he's had, you know, an Obama type thing or a David Cameron thing where what people thought they were getting didn't actually play out in practice because the business of being in government is much more difficult and involves a lot more compromise than being in opposition and so it's not going to be some kind of socialist utopia that fueled all of the hope it just can't be because you have to deal with money and the house of commons <laughs> and mm. everything else and unless you've got a really thumping majority you can't do what you want your members don't have that either and people will always membership will always peak of parties as a leadership election is on the horizon so you can't control who comes in or who comes back
Do you think that that is like the perhaps the only major significant difference between political fandom and geek fandom? So in the piece, you you talked about uh, political conferences. Um, you compared mm. them to fan conventions like Comic Con. Uh, we're in conference season now, um, so the Lib Dems have just finished theirs in Bournemouth. Uh, one of our writers and podcasters, Beth Desmond, uh, was attending. Labour's conference in Brighton is over the weekend and over the uh, next couple of days, uh, and many more social reviewers um, will be heading there. Um, as a little plug. That that material difference, which we just touched on in my mind, uh, is that over time, conventions don't really change their topics or who appears there too much. Like, you know, you can always rely on uh, there to be, if you're going to San Diego Comic Con, you can always rely on, like, you know, Mark Hamill to show up or whatever, or there to be talk about Buffy or um firefly or marvel or dc or whatever whatever geek franchise you want to say um you know franchise di- franchises dip in and out of popularity but for the if you're a geek then at least at least in my mind you never really move to 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 aggressively disliking something if you've if you've once been a fan of it i don't know if you'd agree with that um uh, doctor who phantom <laughs> well yes yeah, so doctor, doctor who fans who live for hating the show as it yes. is now <laughs> What I mean is that if you start out as a Doctor Who fan, it's very unlikely that you end up hating Doctor Who. Whereas in politics, it's very common for people who are once a big fan of someone, so Tony Blair is the most notable mm. example, to then actually really dislike them in the future. Um, so do you, would you say that that is the only material difference between geek fandom and political fandom? Yeah, probably, because... When you're a geek fan, you're a fan of material that's actually there. So you've seen, like, I mean, people become a fan when they see the first images of an actor as a character, you know, when something's, mm. oh, so-and-so is going to be something in the next Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, or this is the new Doctor Who companion. Like, you might decide to cosplay them at that point and go, oh, they're awesome because they represent me somehow physically, their appearance or what I know already about the actor tells me that I'm going to be a fan of this. But generally speaking, it's because you have read the thing, seen the thing. Whereas a lot of the stuff within political fandom is actually projection. So Mm. it's like, what I hope this person is going to do and be, what this person seems to represent to me. And then that will obviously always let you down because people are human so they've Mm. got factors working against them but also they're human beings they might have a messiah complex by the end like tony blair um but you know what people want jeremy corbyn to be he could never ever live up to i mean nobody could he is a flawed and problematic man but like even if he was just a lovely wonderful superstar the best person the best politician we've ever had he still can't be that and people love will always love them more in politics most politicians more in opposition or at the beginning of their reign you know that phrase is that you know all politics all political careers end in failure they do you never leave at the time of your choosing you're always dumped out or have to step down for whatever reason and people will always hate you by the end but that's because you couldn't be what they wanted you to be people want a corbyn-led government to nationalise all the things, make everything better, destroy austerity. It cannot do that. The political fandom is in most cases built on nothing in the politics terms. In personal terms, you might know quite a lot about them and you might have met them and really liked them. But in terms of the actual project, you haven't seen the material or, or enough of it in action at the point where you become a fan. It's easier to be unproblematic fan of a historical politician like 
it's it's cool now to be a fan of Harold Wilson or mm. Clement Attlee because you can just look at the whole of their record <laughs> mm. Mm. and then go and these are the bits that weren't so good and these are the bits that were good and then just like they can't disappoint you now they've stopped they're dead because they're dead yeah <laughs> but, yes alive ones can disappoint you just like a mm. Doctor Who can disappoint you because there will always be new seasons of the show and they might not be the version of the show that you like do you, do you think there's any way to circumvent that like to your mind has there been any example of a politician in british political history or political history in other countries where they have managed to cultivate a successful personal fandom in the vein of geek fandom where it stays broadly consistent um like do you think that's at all possible maybe you know if you're a politician and you completely fictionalize your image and you do play a character um maybe it could be possible then and you just totally divorce who you really are to who you are in public life but i to my mind i can't think of any examples of that i don't think that's possible to to even do that now because we have so much Mm. access to everything and all of the leaks are more prominent and everything i mean it's probably easier to do if you die (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) sounds really blunt but you know the version of jfk that people have in their heads is very different from you know the quite flawed reality and if he was still bumbling along just being fat and old cheating on his wife an old drunk now cheating on his wife because you know he was a terrible womanizer it seems vaguely glamorous that he was sleeping with marilyn monroe but you know if he Mm. was still alive he'd just be another creepy old man saying problematic Mm. things to kind of like uh go to a more like positive uh side of fandom in 2017 you published a paper titled every day can be ed ball's day in uk politics fandom uh it's a great title um and you wrote about the positive effects of fandom uh in your case so you uh we're talking about the 2010 election um, and how uh, your mutuals were mostly women and LGBTQI people of all classes, cutting across the usual hierarchies of political commentary. Um, and you wrote about how, when you were preparing for and recovering from surgery, being an Ed Balls super fan was one of the few things that stopped you from being utterly despondent. Um, how important is fandom to your identity now? Like, do you have a favourite fandom? Are they all equal favourites? <laughs> well, apart from Doctor Who, um, Ed Balls, I still love Ed. Um, and <laughs> he still gives me great joy in my life. And then I make people watch certain clips and they're like, oh, I get it now. I thought you were just being weird, which I quite like. <laughs> they see him as this uh, camp, r- ridiculous, lovely, weirdly non-creepy character. And they go, Well, oh, you've right, met him I several times, haven't you? Yeah, I've met him quite a lot. Um, mm. uh, it's always lovely chatting to him so it is pleasurable um Mm. and my fandom for politics as a whole actually still i really love being in the thick of politics even when everything seems like it's on fire being around Mm. other people who care about it is brilliant and it's that community side of it as well as the identity that is super important and i think people forget that it's not about hashtag not a cult it's not. It's not. It's not mm. about necessarily atta- wanting to attack everybody or wanting to be a wrecker or being tribal and being nasty and enjoying putting the other side down. Why people get into a fandom is because it's something that gives them joy, mm. and being a fan when it's great gives me joy. It being around other people sharing it, but just oh my god, there's some new footage of airballs out that i can make a gif of (laughs) (laughs) or oh my god someone could pick up the mace in 
the House of Commons and we're all watching BBC Parliament. It's mm. gone mad, but it's brilliant. And you know who Black Rod is. This is fantastic. We can all enjoy the geeking out about it. Geeking out is absolutely fun. And people should not think of Phantom as just being the downside of it and inappropriate or whatever. It's also just lovely and joyous and exciting and being able to make stuff around it is really good. Like when I was involved in the UCU strikes last year, I drew pictures of the two Eds and put them on my placards because it made me <laughs> laugh. And then people would ask me about it when I was on the picket line and then I could have conversations that made me feel comfortable as an autistic person talking about like my special interests gave me a way in to have conversations with people on the picket line that could sometimes be awkward. And that's really nice. And I, other people should be able to have access to that and not just kind of go, oh, it's terrible. It doesn't necessarily have to be about people. It can be just about being labor or something. I just don't like it when it's about a faction. I think factional fandom is way more damaging than personal fandom because it can then control the whole of your experience of politics long term. Whereas obviously for a person, people come and go. A faction tends to persist and so it can be really problematic if you become too attached to one. Perfect for the social review. We're the only <laughs> non-factional faction within the Labour Party because we have people who are not in the Labour Party as well. Ooh-woo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the social review. Well, we took some questions and uh, the question which I thought was when and the others agreed was almost the um, had the potential to be the most uh, interesting. And I think also deeply connected to um, what we've just been talking about is and this may sound like a bit of a stretch, but please stay tuned and it will all make sense um is was a question actually by julia's partner lee Haley, we love you um who simply asked us to review the film it's chapter two uh which came out i think it was last week um which lines and i have both seen and uh i think lee is deeply engrossed in it at the moment so julia although i'm not sure she's actually seen the film um i'm sure she basically feels like she has seen it but um what's interesting in it is in It's Chapter 2, which is a story of a demonic clown um, <laughs> uh, terrorising a group of people who've come back together again. It's a follow-up to 2017's It. These kind of adults return to the town where they grew up in and in trying to defeat said demonic clown have to come to terms with a lot of their kind of childhood traumas. I think what, what a lot of people have touched on was actually how the film had a lot of quite deep queer film themes in it and that's not, not just... Um, as uh, as my English teacher at school might have said, uh, me quote reading too much into things, but actually at the heart of the story, in my opinion, was uh, is a um, is a gay love story. But more in general, it's about our relationship with our, our childhood and our past. And um, yeah, so uh, I know I know you've seen the film line. So um, what did you uh, what did you think of it? And uh, especially the kind of queer themes to it. So, I mean, uh, the caveat here is uh, I like Stephen King, even though he is um, a flawed author in many ways, and it is kind of an exemplification of that. I love the book, even though it's intensely flawed in a lot of ways. There's a lot of criticism you could make of it. But I, I, I think uh, certainly one thing in the book is that, that like, 
really the book is not really about the characters who are quite well realised but about the small small towns in general and about the kind of the oppressions contained within them and the normativity contained within them you know, in my mind it links to some of the themes in Shape of Water from a couple of years ago which is another film about the ways in which um, normative society works to destroy people um, so looking at okay, it, so it, chapter 2 the actual film um, yeah so uh, they actually made uh, they took some of the queer subtext and queer bits from the book and it, to my mind really drew them out and uh, made them what the film is in large parts about um, uh, which is kind of in some ways a detriment because I think there's other you know I mean in a very flawed Stephen King sort of way there's some narratives about race and about gender which I do not think are well necessarily perfectly executed in the book but are much more there which are not there so much in the film which is a shame however uh, I do like the way in which it it, it it examines kind of queerness and, you know, I'm a trans woman, but like when I was 14, I was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a queer boy, like, you know, that, that was kind of who I was. And that, you know, I remember uh, a school trip where, uh, well, to the battlefields of World War I, uh, and I remember being in a dorm room with a bunch of the boys and, uh, oh, we were playing one of those slightly homoerotic games that teenage boys play and just that sense of because all the people there either weren't queer or certainly weren't admitting it and I wasn't really but I sort of knew that I was in some degree I mean obviously my sexuality and gender has shifted over the years and um, that sense of kind of almost longing but also knowing that there's a lot kind of tied up in it and it reminded me of a scene in the film where so this is this has to be a spoiler so what they explicitly do in this in the film that isn't in the book is they make the character Richie I think very clearly, it's not never he knows it outright, but it's very clear what it's about uh, gay. And there's this scene because each of the characters get to have a flashback of him. You know, he's just played uh, in an arcade with another boy, and he passes the boy a token that they've won, and their fingers sort of touch. And there's this moment of connection between them, and the boy has a sort of gay panic reaction, and, and that gets negative from him. And then, a, then the a scary clown turns up. Objectively, the film it, it kind of does this thing where there's some interesting character bits, and then there's some like terrible jump scares to be endured and I found those bits kind of dull but the character characterful stuff about the oppression of small towns is really good and if I could have had less sort of ah oh, there's a clown that would have been good but anyway and this just I just sort of th- that moment and then and then and linking that kind of repressed queer desire directly to the horror just felt really powerful to me and and then the way in which he you know his care and love for Eddie um, basically becomes really resonant and really key at the end of the film. You know, we see Rich, we see Richie, a character who's normally kind of very humorous and jokey at the very end because he's lost Eddie, who dies just just in the book. Um, not be able to be wisecracking and make jokes because he's he's grieving and that grief is there. It's on the screen, and you see it too in the character of Stanley, who is not explicitly in the text um, queer in any way, but I think is certainly coded as a relatively kind of when he was sitting with a younger boy, kind of effeminate, there's some stuff around, you know, he, he has like a floor head cap at some point and another shirt he wears, and there's some, oh, there's so much kind of stuff in there, and I feel like it's deliberately been put there by the filmmaker, I don't think I'm just reading into it, I, I, I really, as much as it is a massively flawed film in many ways, I think, and a version of a book which also contains flaws, I, I, I really loved it, and it, it, it made me cry a little bit. I completely agree with you about like, it's almost like all the, clown horror movie stuff you're kind of like oh when we're gonna get over this and get back to like people dealing with their traumatic childhoods because that was much more interesting i think i like saw something which was like 
yeah, you just want the clown to stop harassing them and for us to get back to, like, the meat of the story, which is almost the more interesting stuff about the interactions of the characters. <laughs> Defeating the objective of the horror movie, of course, but maybe the real horror was small-town America all along. Thinking emoji. Julia, I don't know if you had any... Uh, I don't think you've seen the film, but, you know, maybe to take a step back and think about kind of LGBT cinema more broadly and maybe a kind of state of the nation as it currently stands... Um, I think some people are saying, you know, that what we're currently having at the moment is almost like a, a kind of heyday, increasingly mainstream, very popular, well, maybe not very popular, but increasingly mainstream stories which deal with a kind of variety of queer films. Um, I, yeah. I, it's so interesting seeing you guys talk about this movie because I haven't seen it, but like, because I have, I, maybe this is just me being overtly cynical and i'll change my mind when i when i watch it but like i i remember when lee came up to me and she was like talking about it and i said it's really nice that you can see yourself in all five minutes which will be cut in china and russia uh because like th like i've bec i'm like really jaded about the stuff like i feel like they only put like like sprinkles of like uh gayness because Unless you unless you do a movie that like is about the subject and uh you know they're just gonna take a risk and it's supposed to be like a smaller budget movie like Moonlight which is like you know it is what it is it's a very sensitive very like emotional movie these big blockbuster movies they're supposed to make money they're they're not gonna put anything which can mean that the movie gets cut in international markets you know actually like Bohemian Rhapsody. When people went to see it in Brazil, people booed Freddie Mercury, like, having, like, a love scene with another guy on screen. Like, this was the level. Like, so, like, I, I am always very cynical, very jaded about these things. Like, I never think that, like, actual queer representation is gonna come from big Hollywood movies. And, uh, as of late, I've become, like, really, really fascinated with, um, with Hollywood. And by Hollywood, I mean also, like... TV and streaming, you know, the whole entertainment in industry. I've become fascinated by it as a thing that we don't really see it as, like, which is like a huge, super powerful capitalist industry whose control, whose merchandising is, yes, the movie, the show, the whatever, but mo more than that is like uh, culture. And it's so interesting when you start reading about like, Hollywood embrace of like early black actresses. I think the first one they embraced was Lena Horne. The reason why they started embracing like the Lena Horns, the Dory Dandridges, was because uh, somebody came up to them and said, "Hey, uh, look at this this uh, chart over here. The the black uh, population could be buying tickets to watch our movies." You know, so that's why they decided to take a chance on that sort of thing. And I think, you know, unless you get, like, similar things for these for movies with gay characters, you're always going to be limited to four or five minutes, which you can cut in China. Foreign markets, like, react differently to it. Like, in Brazil, there was this issue. But yeah, well, I haven't seen it, uh, but I do really like Stephen King, though. Like, um... I spent like years trying to get my my partner to read Pet Cemetery and she didn't and then like she watched like it and I should read the whole of it in like two days. It's amazing. I do think that the, his repeated theme is that like actually what's evil is the heart of man. Yeah, I think he's really good at seeing the horror in the 
every day, as you say, and the, uh, the evil that like lurks in the heart of man and so forth. I think it'd be quite hard to cut all the, these bits out of it because, as I say, oddly, it seems to be kind of the core of what, they, what they've done. Um, I've no doubt that they might have a go. I think that's an interesting question about... I think a lot with video games, but I think it exists with movies and pretty much any form of mass media. You know, we, we want to experience the stories in these things, but these stories are owned and produced by giant corporations who are kind of, as you say, sort of cynically producing what will sell. And when we like it, are we just being sold to? But we derive genuine meaning and, and connection and, and, and emotion from them. And that feels really kind of messed up, fucked up sometimes, you know? Like, and it just feels inescapable, especially something like a big blockbuster movie or, or a video game where... You know, those things are hard, you know, it's hard to make, you know, uh, that can't be done except with the aid of mass capital. Certainly we're in the current world that we live in. But that inherently adds that sense of, of being sold to by it. I don't know if you can escape that. As I say, a film that made a lot, meant a lot to me in 2017 was The Shape of Water, which, again, you know, I think is... It comes out of that system, but it just felt really special just because actually it did feel like it was maybe saying something a bit that really spoke to me. But again, maybe it's just existing within a circle that we're allowed to exist in. Maybe it can't be escaped. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna, like, I haven't read Adorno, but like, all I know about Adorno is that he hated jazz. Like, he kept, like, talking about how much he hated jazz all the time. So like I'm not I'm not doing that thing where I'm saying that like if you listen to jazz you can't be a Marxist, like not at all. See that's the thing about Hollywood. There are the artists and there is the money. There are the people who genuinely want to put something out there and like it's so crazy. But like one of the most important uh, progressive pieces of media ever to resist was the first Star Trek, which had the first interracial kiss in, in television, which was between uh, Kirk and Uhura. And, and like, it's... And, like, that, that it meant something. Like, that was meaningful. And that was impactful, and that has a cultural in- impact. So, like, you know, and Gene Roddenberry, like, the creator of Star Trek, when he put that there, he, he wanted to, like, send this message. And I think one of the first uh, gay kisses on television was also in Star Trek, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. There was a whole like thing that like storyline that wasn't as great, but it was one of the first kisses, if not the first. The thing about like that, so like I'm not saying that like representation in the media doesn't matter, or that like you can't see yourself on pieces of media. And I do think there is something really great about the fact that um, in a story about the evil that lurks in to men hearts, homophobia is one of the issues, you know, um, because, you know, it, it, I do think it says something that, like, you get to put, like, you know, the horror of homophobia as an actual horror, and not as a, you know, thing that people do, or even as a implicit, like, you know, reinforcement, because a lot of old-timey movies are like, yeah, of course I'm a homophobe, like, that's who, why wouldn't you be? That's important, and that's, that's, you know, to use the Tumblr language, you know, valid, but... <laughs> oh, I have but, such a bug about that word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but like, like, I don't, I don't, like, that exists in Hollywood as well, but I, I feel like we should never forget that, like, under that, there's the people who decide that such and such cause is permissible 
And the same people who uh, permit that are also the people who can one day change their minds if we don't uh, fight for those rights. Oh, absolutely. And actually, what you just said about um, kind of homophobia being the kind of the dark core of man's heart. Um, a great sentence. Well, not a great sentence, but you know what I mean? Poetic. It's interesting you touch on the kind of homophobia being the core of all of that, because, you know, to take us back to where we started, actually, um, it's interesting the decision the filmmaker made at the beginning of It Chapter 2, the um, the kind of incident that brings this kind of demonic evil back into the town is, um, is an incredibly graphic uh, homophobic hate crime, which I've seen some kind of chat about... Um, as if to say, you know, some kind of conversation about maybe the, it was kind of too gratuitous and it didn't really, it didn't really, maybe it didn't really speak to anything apart from the fact that, oh, you know, here's something incredibly vicious and was like quite prolonged. At least I felt like it was quite prolonged. Um, and it's actually been quite a long time since I've watched a particularly violent film in the cinema. So when I was watching that on like a huge screen and it was like very loud and it was all just happening and there were all these slurs happening, I found it quite like jarring the essence that maybe even it's interesting that the kind of point that the horror movie is making, you know, like the, the evil that exists, the homophobia that exists actually has nothing to do with this like source of evil that fell from the sky, blah, 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 blah. But is like entrenched in the hearts of ordinary people, quote unquote, you know, who, who permit, who commit kind of homophobic hate crimes as much as it can be like a clown spider that eats children. It's a, something my friends say a lot, is you can tell that we've made quote-unquote progress as a society because now people who were previously completely marginalised are being marketed to, so you can detect the progress because capitalism has now decided that, like, um, we, we, you know, set, we can be sold stuff rather than being ignored or being the butt of jokes. I mean, that's kind of a depressing amount of progress, but it's sort of, it's weird how that does kind of show you a thing. Uh, that's something that, I don't know, it's a conversation I have with a friend bunch of lot. Well, I think that's just about all we have time for, but I just want to say thank you so much to, to Julia and Lines for coming on. I think it's been a really interesting conversation and um, it's been good to hear, good talk about such a variety of things from, you know, institutional homophobia to uh, a film which I have been referring to as the second clown movie for the last 48 hours. So um, all good. Hopefully Lines and Julia will be back joining us soon and uh, yeah, stay tuned. Thanks very much for listening to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. I do hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you very much to Penny Andrews for coming on and talking to me about uh, fandom and political fandom. Uh, thank you to Eugenie for stepping into the hosting chair, uh, as well as to Julia and Lines for coming on and talking about life as an LGBT person. And as per usual, the music you heard was Sweet of a Mouth, composed by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening once again, and you will hear us again uh, next week. Have a good week. Goodbye. Sorry about this, Jasper. Again, uh, I'm sure you'll definitely put one of these in the intro and then another one in the outro, so that'll be fun for you. (laughs)